You're listening to Angling Solutions, a podcast brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, and I'm your host, Joe Roeder. Red's Fly Shop is located on the banks of the Blue Ribbon Yakima River in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We ship flies and fishing gear all over the world. Shipping is fast and it's usually free. Visit us at www.redsflyfishing.com to gear up for your next big fly fishing adventure. Today I welcome Steve Joyce to the podcast. Steve's one of my partners here at Red's Fly Shop and we have been fishing together for a long time. His fly fishing and guiding pedigree stretches all the way back to Montana where he began his guide career on the Bighorn River. He spent quite a few seasons out there and then eventually migrated out here further west and has been at Red's here for a long time. He hired me way back in 2006. We've been fishing and guiding our brains out ever since. So he's got a lot of great information to share. Enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome back to the Angling Solutions Podcast. Joe here and uh, with me is my good pal and partner, Steve Joyce. And uh, we have a dirty topic to talk about today. In regards to fishing. Steve, what are we talking about? We do have a dirty topic, and the topic is runoff. And runoff is a term that a lot of anglers hear it, and it kind of puts that empty, unsettled feeling in the pit of your stomach, and with good reason. And for those of you who have done a lot of trout fishing in the West, you definitely have at some time or another come up against runoff. And runoff should also be attributed to the the appropriate season, which is the spring, because what runoff is, is it's when the the weather gets warm after we've had a long winter, and at some point, all of that snow, the majority of that snow up in the mountains is going to come down, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so currently here, uh, Steve and I, from our office view here gosh we're lucky we can actually see the river right now right from where we're sitting that is a big muddy mess today holy smokes yeah this is a big muddy mess today but i'll tell you i mean we consider this every year when we're looking at our schedule and this big muddy mess today is caused really from what we would define as low elevation runoff because that high mountain snowpack hasn't even started started coming yet this is all just, we had a couple days where it got up into the upper 50s, and all of this low snow in the foothills and valley floor is what's melting and causing this. And as bad as it is today, we're probably fortunate that we didn't get up into the 70s or 80s because it would be a much muddier mess down here, and we might need a boat to get to our office if that were to happen, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah, we're not... Well, now we're a little ways away from that yet. We haven't seen the worst of it, you know, uh, so far. I mean, this is normal. This is nature, you know, cultivating the garden, if you will. Every spring, these rivers, they need that high water and they need those uh, flood events. And there's a lot of benefits, you know, ecologically, you know, to having high water. And uh, what are some of those benefits? Well, it, there's a lot of benefits you know, for the, in terms of the health of the river, for sure. I mean, number one, we need these aquifers to fill up and those aquifers filling up helps keep the, the flow strong into the summer months when it's going to get warm and it helps keep water temps cool then, which benefits obviously the trout and the insect life. 
The other part of runoff like this, I mean, for wild fish populations, wild fish are are bred and they have the instincts to survive this kind of stuff. There is actually a ton of of biomass that gets washed into the river in these periods of high flow like this where these fish are getting plenty of food out there right now. They're not starving. They're not struggling. This is actually a smorgasbord for them, and they have the instincts to pull into the soft edges and, and survive, and they're going to do that just fine. Yeah, it always seems like to me, you know, we, we battle and battle and battle, and we'll definitely get to, you know, some strategies for dealing with, you know, higher or, you know, dirtier water type conditions. But it always seems to me like every year we 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 go through these little bouts and then on the recovery every time you know our local streams here drop back in shape the fish haven't missed a beat man they are big strong hard-bodied healthy as though they just thrive in that that high flow that high dirty flow every time it happens i'm always shocked at how aggressive the fish are you know as that river clears yep we talk about it a lot i mean high water years like this one that we're having and seeing right now are definitely beneficial for the health of the fishery whereas short low water years are actually those are the years where we start to see fish that get marks on them and and get a little soft and you're worried about how they're doing and all that it's those low water years they're great for fishing but they're not real good for the health of the fishery and so it's important to see this we're going to have some time where we might not get to fish at all or we're going to change our fishing techniques but uh overall for the health of the fishery this is good to see this stuff happen yeah i went to a uh we have a you know college here in our our hometown where i went to school central washington university alumni and uh it wasn't until after college that i went back and i went to this symposium and a big part of this thing that i went to uh i think i was invited to it by an ex-professor and uh felt obligated to go i was still kind of snooping around other jobs at the time before i totally committed to outfitting as a career so i went back and uh he invited me to go and i went through this lecture and man i'll tell you they spent half the time talking about the benefits of these flood events and how important it is you know i'm not definitely not going to delve all the way into how we manage our floodplains, but things like levees and dikes and restricting the streams and channelizing them don't allow for these flood events that happen and what would happen in these flood events like you talked about was when that river does get a, an opportunity to spill over its bank and you know flood out where that water is just sitting still well that water is basically ice water right when it when it floods out in the early spring and as that water infiltrates the soil it charges those aquifers with a very very cold water and it takes months in order for or for that water to re-infiltrate the groundwater and then seep into the stream and they said that's one of the you know when they when they do modern kind of river or shoreline management that's a big consideration is we want that river to spill over its banks we want that cold water to infiltrate the soil so it can nourish that river during the summertime when water temperatures get low and especially with some of the challenges that that other rivers face across the west where they might be you know might be overdrawn or warm in the summer months uh that those flood events certainly help you know we're fortunate where we're at the way our river runs because we're yep we're really fortunate we we get really high flows uh because of irrigation we're on the other end of it so irrigation demand downstream from us causes our river to flow high and cool during the summer but we still appreciate the help especially for our tributary streams uh we're going to be fishing those this year 
I mean, they're going to peak in you know late June, July, August, even September, whereas a lot of times they're going to be really warm in August. Two years ago, we were barely fishing you know a lot of the tributary streams by August. That's right. Yep. The water water temperatures were getting up around seventy degrees, but this will definitely uh, help keep them cool. And I, I don't know how other parts of the country are doing it, but are are gauging their runoff. But we're going to have definitely it looks like big and extended runoff this year, but you, you never know. Yeah, and a lot of that depends on what the extended weather forecast is. I mean, ideally, when we've got a lot of mountain snowpack, a forecast that is conducive to actually keeping your fishing dates on the schedule is when we see high temperatures getting up into that you know 50 degree range and lows coming back down into the low 30s you know 34 33 degrees at night causes that that melt off in the mountains to slow way down or even stop so you get a nice frequent you know graph that is going up and coming down and it stays very consistent each day and the fish seem to do really really well and the fishing holds up really well in that kind of a pattern so that's what we like to see now we've all been on rivers where all of a sudden you know the the river it gets we get one warm day and the river spikes and we get a lot of you know calls the next morning or even late that night and guys are going oh should I come or shouldn't I come and I mean it's a crapshoot kind of when that happens you know that Joe oh yeah you know and honestly we don't know a lot of the time but as far as predicting runoff, you mentioned something really important that people should know, and we're not meteorologists here. You know, we we don't know everything about how runoff's going to come down because you have things to consider, like the free air freezing or yeah, free air freezing level in the mountains is going to be different than wherever you're checking your AccuWeather.com report. You know, so there's there's you know the runoff is going to come from different elevations, and it's really hard to know at what rate, but if you start to see overnight lows that are really warm uh, in the springtime, like mountain air temperatures in the mid-40s, you can almost be assured that runoff is going to increase or continue at whatever rate it is if it's already high. But as far as monitoring runoff, uh, you know, how should guys go about predict, you know, kind of a combination of both predicting it and monitoring it to see what it's actually doing on the stream that they intend to fish? Yeah, and I think the key thing with that, I mean, you know, at this point, angling instinct just has to come into play. I mean, anglers in general, and I'll, I'll revisit this point a little bit later in our discussion here, but anglers in general, fishing a rising river is difficult. It doesn't matter if you've got good visibility or not, and we'll talk about visibility more later too, Joe. But, uh, you know, fishing a rising river in general is difficult, and the reason is is those fish are probably at that point they go into survival mode they're more they're more occupied with just trying to to move out to the edges and into the softer water zones when they feel the the water pressure pick up against them it they just want to get out of the way of big logs and rocks and that kind of stuff coming down the river they're not that interested in going and finding a a stonefly or a mayfly nymph at that point and once a river kind of stabilizes that's where those fish are going to settle into their soft water zone wherever it happens to be however high the water made it it they're going to find a soft water zone they're going to stabilize and and they're going to start feeding again at that point 
and especially when the river starts to drop and they sense a, a drop in that water pressure, that's when they're going to feel a whole lot more comfortable and start feeding again. Yeah, what you just described is like I'm picturing a trout and during the hurricane, like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, exactly. Here it comes. And they could just feel it. There's logs and rocks and all sorts of debris floating by. And what was once their home is no longer their home. And they're they're kind of on a mission to get to the storm shelter, if you will, you know. Uh, and once they're in the storm shelter, things get a little bit more sane. And at that point, you're saying it's at that transition, they, they begin to feed but on that initial rise, that's definitely a challenge because the trout's priority is definitely not feeding. At yeah. least most trout. I mean, I mean, we've all had some great days on rising rivers, and we'll talk about some strategies to do it. But in general, it's once that river has kind of come up, we've hit beyond that initial burst. And uh, especially once the river might still be high dirty, but it's dropping, might be... Uh, a decent time to to pursue fishing dirty water yeah i mean obviously we're not mine readers for trout but in our experience which has been you know over over 20 years of fishing these kinds of conditions now it seems like that's always been a good time to go out and catch fish is is after flow stabilize and especially on the drop during the rise during a big rise fishing is going to be pretty tough no matter what i would say now that being said we actually we both had some some great days i mean you always are going to get guys who say you know what i've got the day off and i don't care that the river is flowing double what the normal flows are if you think that it's you know going to be worthwhile at all to come out it's not just going to be a boat ride then let's go fishing and i actually like fishing in high water conditions like that because even though there's more water in the river there's actually less spots for those fish to be holding. Same number of trout are out there, but even though there's more water in the river, some of it, most of it is just flowing too hard and too fast that trout are not going to be sitting in that. So, so once you get to know a river system and you realize, recognize where those soft holding water lies are at, you actually can have some great days of fishing in high water out there. And I know you've experienced that too, Joe. Yeah, and we gotten you know a lot better and wiser at it over the years. I used to just roll my brains out, break my back, kill myself, and you know we'd come back at the end of the day and might have a couple fish or something. And over time, uh, you know, you learn to fish a lot smarter, and you don't fight you don't fight that high flow as much. I certainly don't try to fish everything you know in high water, but I'm very patient, very careful, and in a in a I don't know I have a quote and I usually drop it when I'm guiding. Maybe my quote changes regularly but uh it's something like i'd rather have 10 cast in a in a day of high water mud you know muddy water i'd rather have 10 casts in in the 10 best spots than thousands of casts in mediocre spots absolutely there's only a few spots those trout are going to be holding and you need to you definitely need to target your efforts over known water but before we talk you know get too tactical on this uh you know so we'll talk a little bit about visibility because you hear, you know, people throw that term clarity around or, you know, there was two feet of viz or 18 inches of viz or like today, four inches of viz. Yep. <laughs> uh, you hear that term. Uh, describe uh, the Steve Joyce method of describing uh, visibility. Well, I mean, I would say the easiest method to describe visibility is to walk out into the river, look at the, you know, light part of your wading boot walk out into the river and 
step out there until you can't see that light or white colored part of your wading boot anymore and, and measure the depth of the water when that happens. And that would be your visibility. For fishing terms, what that means is how close do you have to get your fly to the nose of that fish in order for him to see it and recognize it as food. That's the simple solution to it. Now, is there a formula for how close that needs to be to get a fish to eat it? And, and do you have to have a certain minimum amount of visibility to, to make fishing worthwhile? The answer to that would be absolutely not. I mean, I've caught plenty of fish in four inches of visibility, and especially at times, the, the main time of year that, that I think visibility is the least important is during the caddis hatch. That's a spring hatch with a huge volume of bugs that for whatever reason the fish must really like the taste of caddis because once that caddis hatch gets started at the start of that hatch every fish in the river keys in on eating those things and that also coincidentally is in the spring right when runoff can can come and it can be nasty dirty runoff and i've seen days plenty of days where there is four inches of visibility just like joe described this today where those caddis know where those foam bubble lines are at. They know where those soft holding lies are that those caddis are going to get pushed into those eddies and they're going to be there at 11 o'clock in the morning. And those fish will move into those eddies then and they will sit within four inches of the surface of the water. And when those caddis start coming down, they're going to start sipping those things. And we've seen that happen time and time again. Now, four inches of visibility this time of year when there's not a... A billion caddis hatching and and it looks like carpet across the river is a different deal because those fish you know getting your fly within four inches of one fish that isn't you know showing you the target is going to be a little bit more challenging thing to to deal with yeah high you and the one of the distinctions there is you know high swift and that that term varies for different rivers. You know, we're talking about there's hundreds and hundreds of rivers across the country that you know our listeners might be thinking of. But if the river is high and swift and it's running bankful, uh, high cold water is very very challenging. You know, cold being sub forty degrees. You know, which is we're probably at about forty degrees here today, or even sub forty five degrees. Now you take that same high swift low and you put fifty five degree water in there. And all of a sudden, we've probably got more insect activity and we get higher rate of metabolism on the trout. So, you know, relatively warm, you know, I don't know the exact temperature parameters we'll define as warm, but like, you know, dirty water in June is different than dirty water in March, I would say for sure. Dirty water Absolutely. in March is a little bit more challenging. So, so that's kind of the, that's the Steve Joyce method of visibility. Walk in there if you can see your toes, yep. you know, that's the depth. Um, how close do you have to get your fly to the nose of the fish for him to distinguish it as food? That's your definition of visibility applied to angling. Yeah, and then here's a qu interesting question um, that that we often ask when I can see my anglers, you know, getting a little bit mopey on a on a dirty water day. They're kind of moping around, and I am equally good at not catching fish in clear water as I am in dirty water. I can not catch fish in either very well. Uh, but when I see him getting down a little bit in the dirty water, an interesting question is, well, how close does it have to be if the water's clear? You think these trout swim seven feet to come get your fly? No, they don't. You still have to present the fly within that fish's strike zone. Yep. And for trout in, in pocket water, especially, 
or living in confined spaces, in clear water, you still need to get the fly within 12 to 18 inches of fish. Absolutely. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we can we can sometimes use dirty water strategically or use it to our advantage. And, you know, there's always, and it seems to me like the best days I've ever had, you know, guiding. You know, and I've been guiding, this is going to be my 18th season. You've been guiding longer than me. But it seems like a lot of my very best and most memorable days, there's always some risk involved, you know, in the equation. Either the weather was kind of weird or bad or windy or... Uh, the water was either we weren't sure if it was going to fish good because the rise was beginning or it was just barely coming into shape you know and some of that risk might have been the couple days prior when we were kind of trying to make the call on whether this trip's going to happen but fish will often feed very aggressively in changing conditions in stagnant conditions fishing can be very difficult if that river has remained low and clear for long extended period of times trout are smart they got to go into a defensive mode and they might feed in the mornings and evenings and during the hatch a little bit, but they will find places to live that they feel very secure in stagnant river conditions. So Yeah, and I think another, another good point to mention with that, Joe, is fly selection in dirty water definitely still does matter. I mean, what anglers are trying to do, the, the purpose of fly fishing is the science of it is taking whatever is on that fish's daily menu and trying to imitate it with thread and feathers and and synthetic materials to look like that regular food. And what a lot of people don't realize, we fish a lot of San Juan worms in the spring months out All here. The now time. some some rivers we call them the dirt snake. Some rivers they fish them year round and and you know fly anglers in general are going you know, I don't understand why we're fishing these San Juan worms. I mean, fish just must eat worms all the time because I never really see worms. There's never a worm hatch or anything like that. But the thing to realize, the important thing to realize in spring conditions, when this river has gone up and it's gotten dirty like this, there is a lot of bank erosion that's taken place. So there are a ton of natural earthworms that end up in the water and they're pretty big. We all know earthworms are, are pretty big size-wise, and they're very visible. I mean, that pink or red in dirty water conditions is very visible. So this is actually one of the legitimate times of year where an earthworm is going to be on that trout's everyday menu. So you should not ignore, or, or if you want to catch fish and make the most of your day, you should not say, I don't fish dirt snakes out there. You need to start. You need to start fishing them for sure. That's on the menu. It is the most logical match the hatch fly selection that you can make in the spring without argument. You can take the you know, we'll we'll use the term purist because dirt snakes have a reputation of being kind of a a dirty trick. They're they're worm fishermen. They're worm fishermen. Red can of Folgers. Yeah, barely one notch above bait chuckers, right? So, but if you go actually screen and we do this in our classes, we do bait. You know, we do an, this is not an advertisement. We do an outstanding beginning fly fishing class pretty much every Saturday. Okay, it is an advertisement, and I don't feel bad about it. But during that class, you know, I've taught that class dozens of times, and we go out and we actually screen insects out of the river. We go out and we see what's underwater. It's a whole other world down there. And worms are on the menu, especially in the spring. Later in the summer, we definitely don't see as many, but every time we do that screen man we come back with six worms in there i mean it's and you're teaching class and it's probably one of the most logical conclusions each student can have and they see a couple of earthworms in the screen and we open the fly box and we ask the students 
Okay, let's pick out a couple of matches. And the stonefly nymphs are pretty easy, you know, they're big black stonefly nymph, but the worms are the most logical match the hatch, etymological choice. For sure, yep, and a high protein source for those fish. And I really think, and I, and I read an interesting article one time about like uh, wild animals, They when they are in need of a particular nutrient, they will go to extreme lengths to get that particular nutrient, right? So uh, I think the story was about in Africa, there was like one tree, right? And all these animals would migrate, you know, many miles to this one tree and they would either eat the soil or lick the bark off this one tree. And it turned out that they were trying to figure out why the animals went to this one tree. And there was one nail in that tree that had one element, you know, maybe zinc or something. And the animals, even though it was just trace amounts, they had to have that. And it seems like that with the worms. I don't know if trout, you know, need that particular, you know, that particular protein for subsistence. But there are days where they just want worms and nothing else. They'll swim yep. past your stonefly nymph, even in, even in semi-clear water where they can see, say, you have a two-fly rig. And they can see both. They will choose the worm every single time. For sure. For sure. And I mean, the thing about trout this time of year, during the periods of spring runoff, it these trout have come through the coldest months of the year where their metabolism has been very low. So they haven't been moving a lot. They haven't needed a lot of calories to sustain their, their activity because they haven't had a lot of activity in the winter months. But they're now coming through the winter and getting ready for spawn so they they have a, a nutrient requirement. They need to go out and search out some calories because once they get into spawn, they're gonna they're not gonna be feeding very hard for a few weeks in the spring months, and they they want to come into that in good shape. You know, and I've always thought, yeah, they're gonna be they're gonna be busy here uh, just about any time. I mean, we're we're just about. I mean, our fish spawn over a very broad range range of time. Uh, it's not. It's not like a you know spawning chinook that are all going to spawn in the same ten day or two week period, but our fish will react to conditions, temperatures, and runoff, and decide when to to dig reds and actually you know procreate. Um, but I've always thought this high water like this, how great is that for the spawn? It's because great. It, it's the most vulnerable time for the fish, right? So they come, uh, they they're very hungry leading up to the spawn. They spawn right and spend however many days or weeks on the reds, and they come off that spawn. They're emaciated. Uh, our river is open year-round. Um, we rarely see reds or spawning reds in the river, but we do catch fish that have either recently been on reds or maybe were occupying red at that time. Uh, for our river, there would be almost no way where we're located to identify where red's going to be. It's a big, giant canyon. Um, so we might catch those fish that are emaciated coming off the spawn, and we try to let them go as fast as we possibly can. But yeah. I've always felt like when we get these bouts of runoff like this, what great protection for those big mature spawning fish in, you know, the form of obviously fishing pressure, as I mentioned, you know, we're delicate with the fish, but yeah, we is... also don't have anglers out there waiting, potentially waiting through some of their reds after they've spawned though. Um, we don't have anglers potentially catching fish while they're on a red. Like you said, I mean, our, our spring conditions out here, we don't really see a lot of fish spawning in the river channel. We definitely, there are some areas where you know it's going on because it's the right kind of shallow gravel and, and you do see some once in a while. But uh, the big part of protection, I mean, from, you know, we have 26 species of raptors in the canyon here and 
those things love finding fish, big trout, and shallow water. And when we have enough, you know, low enough visibility that they can't see into the river, that that makes a huge impact on it. Yeah, we got a bunch of, that's just what I was going to say, is we got tons of herons, which yep. herons will tackle a large mature fish. It oh, is yeah. shocking. Those things are vicious. And we got a bunch of ospreys too. We have two bald eagles sitting on a nest almost within sight of where we're at right now. And, you know, it always works. It seems like the osprey catches the trout. The eagle steals the trout from the osprey, and the osprey's got to go catch another trout. And yep. it, in low, clear water, that cycle's just vicious. I was sitting uh, about to launch my boat one day, and uh, it was a really uh, low, it was really low, clear conditions. I was sitting there, I was talking to my dad on the phone, and I still remember this moment. And I was looking out, and the river was maybe six or eight inches deep for a long ways, maybe like 100 feet. And I'm sitting there talking to him, and I'm mid-sentence, and this osprey cruises by, flies down into like six or eight inches of water, grabs a beefy like 16-inch, maybe more fish, and the fish was so big, it got its talons into it, and it couldn't take off, and so it just started hopping along and finally you know, got it over to the bank and wrestled it to the shore. And I was just sat there in awe that an osprey would actually catch a fish that was so big it couldn't even take off with it. Yep which is just shocking yep. in it. It made me realize immediately at that moment, I'm like, man, these trout are kind of getting it from all angles here. Yep. About uh, three years ago, I was driving up the canyon here and about three miles up the shop, up from the shop, I saw an osprey flying with a big fish in it. And about the time I noticed it, it the fish must have, have wiggled its way out of its talons. It dropped the fish right on the highway as I was coming up to it. And it was about a 19-inch cutthroat. Oh, my God. And, I mean, I was, you know, dumbfounded, too. I mean, it had just caught it, just pulled fish. it out of the river. And and I, you know, at that point, that fish was, was done. And I didn't want to, you know, disturb the osprey. He'd already killed it. He may as well have it. So I just kept on going. But, yeah, they will eat big fish, and they pull them out of shallow water. And this time of year is when they're vulnerable. Yeah, and those big fish are just so critical. We can't encourage people enough. You know, uh, what Steve said, you know, Anglers in our, in our particular stream are rarely going to be hiking around where there are reds. Uh, you know, it, there's lots of information online you can find about how to identify reds, how to avoid them. Geographically, for us, it's not extremely relevant. We're on a really large stream. We fish out of boats at least when we guide about you know 80 or 90 percent of the time. But yeah, uh, lots of our of our wade fishing on this river, even from boats, is going to be done from the shore just because the bank is steep and deep and water's moving and you're not going to step off the bank and, and cast back. You're fishing right from the shore. Yeah, well, that's a good tip. So let's kind of dive into strategy a little bit. So people have a couple of options. Let's just say they're you know heading out for the weekend, right? They again, plan to go fishing on Saturday. Thursday rolls around and they're checking uh, online. The the USGS has great stream flow data for almost every stream in the country, and you can you can get on the USGS site and usually find a stream flow report for wherever you're thinking about going. But let's just say it's Thursday, river's not looking good. You know, it, maybe it's marginal. Uh, we talked a little bit about visibility uh, before we get get in the real technical stuff. Maybe touch on Steve tolerances of visibility because different streams are gonna fish differently, right? Um, Definitely. I mean, and, and like we talked about earlier, I think the the particular season makes a huge difference on it. I would say in general for spring runoff, we're talking about early season fishing, 
And I think that, you know, if you're looking at the graphs deciding whether or not you're going to go fish the river, number one, it you probably want, if it's, if it's, you know, in runoff and dirty water, I would say, number one, you want to see a stable hydrograph or a dropping hydrograph to consider going and fishing it. You don't want to do it if the river is, is still on a, a big rise. And number two, for this time of year, I think that 18 inches of visibility is a reasonable amount of visibility to go out and and give it a try. Yeah, and then have you fished rivers? You know, I can think of maybe a couple uh, that 18 inches of visibility would be good visibility. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, we do a lot of uh, bass fishing in the spring, even on this lower river, the lower Yakima, smallmouth bass. And I down on that river you've got a ton of irrigation returns that are coming back in so you never have clear water conditions down there i mean you never have two foot of viz down there during the time period when we fish bass and the bottom line is is those fish are in the river it they don't go anywhere when visibility goes to six inches they're still in the river and so they've adapted to it they feed in those kinds of conditions so there are absolutely times where you fish rivers that are completely dirty. We talked about the caddis hatch on this river up here. That would be one where it would be acceptable to go and fish in four or six inches of visibility. If it's right during that big caddis hatch and the trout have keyed in on those and started sipping dries, it, they're, you're going to find fish feeding even in, in that type of visibility. Down on that lower river with the bass fishing, it, those fish are in there. And in six inches of visibility, what you need to do and what you need to get good at in those conditions is to identify the type of water that those fish are in and then identify what you need to do gear-wise and fly-wise to present your fly within six inches of those fish. So if they're deep, you need to get deep. If they're, you know, suspended a foot off the bottom, then that's the presentation you need to make. If they're right against the the edges, you need to get your fly right against the edges to get to them. Yeah, and I know that uh, there are other rivers that just perennially run much dirtier. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so you know, you show up to a spring creek that is normally gin clear, and all of a sudden it's dirty one day because of some affluent or sudden runoff or something, big rainstorm. That's going to react differently than, uh, say, our river, which is not all, not going to be gin clear like that right the aforementioned stream so d- different rivers are going to have different tolerances some i don't mind fishing when they're dirty some i'm gonna i'm gonna probably be a little bit scared off uh if it's normally six seven feet of visibility and all of a sudden we're down to 12 that's a little bit different than a river that might normally have three or four feet of visibility and we're down to down to 12 that that river that those fish have definitely adapted feeding techniques to deal with limited visibility in where they live where they hold how they feed how they react to yep they have they've established their comfort zones yeah because fish is you know and and some listeners may not realize this but those fish are definitely going to feel and hear that fly moving through the water if we're talking about imitating bait fish patterns like those bass right yep so those smallmouth are going to hear that fly moving through the water there's going to be a disturbance in the force they hear that the way we would hear a plane flying by and they can look over or pursue that. So, yep. Yep. Yeah, there was a study about a brown trout uh, that they took and they took this aquarium, right? 
and they shut off all the lights, completely black, and they put minnows in this aquarium with the brown trout. Uh, by the next day, the brown trout had eaten every single minnow in the fixed aquarium and never ran into the edge. Just to give you know listeners an idea of how perceptive, especially brown trout, have a much more uh, adept uh, hearing or lateral line or hearing mechanism for prey moving about, which is why brown trout are nocturnal feeders, you know, often nocturnal feeders. They're going to feed, especially more mature brown trout are going to feed by by hearing and listening and uh, sensing their prey, you know, move about, whereas rainbows in a river like where we're at are going to be much more uh, visually uh, stimulated by our presentation. But if you're fishing brown trout in, in areas of dirty water, uh, you know, larger streamers that make, make a little bit of noise, things with rubber legs, spun hair is said to make a lot of noise underwater uh, anything with a lot of movement anything short of a rattle trap probably will uh will get the brown trout's attention so that's you know maybe one instance where you know people with limited visibility might consider uh or might consider if there's large brown trout six yeah. inches of visibility no problem i'm going to give it a shot at least yeah you know if- any of those predatory species brown trout largemouth smallmouth bass i mean all of them yeah use a big fly that makes some noise in the water yeah so so touched on visibility a little bit and let's just kind of go back to that scenario so it's thursday we're thinking about going and let's just say you know uh maybe it's marginal the river is crested it's dropping it's not abnormally high it's just high um, most of that usgs sites give you uh kind of the flow median so you can see where it might normally flow that time of year yep. and let's just say we're within a semi-reasonable threshold uh, so let's just say we're going to go and we're going to fish some some off-colored water uh what are we going to what are we going to do about it how are we going to approach the water differently uh if visibility is limited well it like we said before i mean the thing about high water is those fish actually same number of fish are out there as periods of low water differences is in low water those fish could be just about anywhere out there none of it might be pushing so hard that a fish wouldn't want to hold in it so in periods of high water what you want to look for is soft water and like you said earlier you'd rather take 10 casts in good spots than a thousand casts beating your fly all the way down the river and a good formula to use in periods of high water i would say is always look for the inside edges versus the outside edges the weak banks is what we'd call it anytime a river takes a turn you've got a strong bank which is the outside edge where the fastest current goes and then you've got a weak bank which is the inside edge which kind of just has that soft little ledge which in periods of reasonable watercolor you've always got the drop off the color change where the shallow water is brown and it changes to green or blue where it gets a little deeper and that color change line line is always a good spot to look for fish so inside corners is a good spot always in high water the other thing that that it always makes for a good spot a productive place where you know fish are going to be sitting is the downriver side of any island or small gravel bar and you know that that bass fishing scenario I used earlier. I mean, when we're fishing smallmouth on this lower Yakima in the spring months when, you know, normal visibility down there is six to 12 inches, that's just normal. And it doesn't bother us a bit when we pull in and and we see that mud coming down. We fish the bottom end of every single gravel bar that we come to. 
and most of them, there are days where we'll catch a fish on every one of them. I mean, that gravel bar could be 10 feet long is all and stick out of the water two inches and right in that nervous water before the two seams come back together, you've got that sweet little triangle there and we'll pull a fish out of every one of those. Man, you just hit on the best tip about reading water for high water conditions that there there is. And yeah, that island tip. And islands can be exposed or they can be just barely under the surface too. Yep, there's and always a current break there. Man, you know, we, we've just fished, you know, over the years in a lot of tough conditions. Um, but man, that's the number one tip that somebody, when it comes to reading water, can have because what happens with that dirty water is it approaches that island, right? And so that dirty water is infiltrating that island. Well, there's a water table under the river as well that actually there's that interflow that runs through the rocks. And when that water pushes out the bottom side of that island, if you go look at that closely, that water is filtered and quite clear just below the island because that water is just being pushed right through that gravel. And if you look at that, that below that island, it's also dropped the, the sediment. So there's, you know, there's, and I don't know the technical term for describing the size of the sediment in the water, but the size of the sediment in the water, it can't, when it stops up below that island, it can't carry that sand anymore, right? Because sand, if it were in a lake, for instance, would just fall to the bottom. Well, when it comes in that water pushes through that island and settles out and it's moving really, in not it's really not moving at all immediately below the island, that water has to drop that sediment load. And then those trout sit right below, right where that, that current starts to pick up again below that dead spot, right where that starts to move forward is like, man, if I had, if I were fishing for a million dollars, I mean, I would go and I had X amount of time, I would go just to those types of spots. Yep, you'd hit that little triangle. And that's the thing. I mean, you just have to look at it. You can look at the water and you realize, I mean, it's all about for a trout at that point, it's all about calories burned versus calories consumed. And for a trout to sit in that heavy current flow out there, it's burning a lot of calories. Whereas it moves into that, that soft spot just below the island or on inside corner. And now it's going to be a net calorie gain for the fish. They can sit right on the edge of that current and grab any food that's coming by, but they're sitting there in that soft water and, and getting fat at that point. Yeah, and the inside corners basically do the same thing. Exactly. Most inside corners generally riffle out. You know, they get shallow. It's almost like a sub submerged island because that river typically goes through a, a shallow riffle there on that inside. And then as it drops off, that that drop off is actually water that's not just not the water isn't falling in the column, but that water is actually coming out of the gravel. So there's springs, there's all sorts of hidden springs throughout every single river where those fish are enjoying groundwater. Uh, and inside corners with drop-offs, they're getting a nice push of clean water under from that gravel underneath down there. So uh, that's a huge tip. And then um, what about just spending your time? Like, so think of it like an offensive coordinator in football, right? So you, you've got some plays to call. It's not just about running a good play, but it's about plays you call where you spend your time and where you make your casts yeah i mean first off it you know you you want to i mean i would not fish in in river conditions where we're above normal flows and visibility is 18 inches i wouldn't even waste time fishing all the way down the river you're probably going to do nothing but lose flies and get tangled up and and the guy doing the rowing might 
you know, be more inclined to take some chances that he shouldn't take if he's got guys fishing. I mean, I would just push from spot to spot and fish those sweet spots is what I would do. Um, maybe fish from the boat on the go when you get into some of those, you know, long, slow, consistent channels. It could be worth it to take a few casts on the go, especially if you're throwing a big dry fly. I mean, if it's during the salmon fly hatch or a squala hatch where you're fishing a big dry fly in spring conditions, some of those long, straight, grassy banks can be productive. Fish will move into those if they're looking to eat a big dry like that. But otherwise, if I'm a passenger in that boat, I mean, use that time while you're pushing down the river to finally clip all the tag ends of your tippet that you cut flies off and stuck them in your patch on your vest use that time to trim those back up and put them back and reorganize your fly boxes while the guy doing the rowing is just pushing down to the next spot be productive about it and and the guy doing the rowing should float down if you typically are fishing down one particular bank on a certain section of the river move over to the other side and just start paying attention to what it would be like to to fish that one of these upcoming trips that you've never really paid any attention to before so use your time wisely in between spots but i probably wouldn't dilly dally you the success of your day as far as catching fish is spending time in those productive zones game clock management exactly it's right there yep. like yeah you want to you want to know when to move and and kind of when to move on and i tend to i tend to focus on yeah fewer spots spots i know to be productive and you want to approach those spots very, very carefully because fish, well, we're going to speak primarily to trout here, but trout are, are often going to hold in relatively shallow water when it's when it's to higher conditions. They generally move to the edges. They like a little bit of sunlight penetration, so they're often on the edges. And if you go stomping you know, out into the river on those inside corners, you're not going to be very productive because often, and I said this on the last podcast, but we drive what? So you, you live, you know, I don't know, 10 miles. You live less than 10 miles from the shop. I drive by about 13 miles of Trout River every single morning and every single afternoon. I see lots of fishermen. You drive pretty much the same. So about 13 miles of Trout River. And so we see anglers, and we often see anglers standing where the fish are, especially in, in higher water conditions because those fish are going to move into the softer water, the softer edges, so you need to, when you when you make that decision that you are going to engage that inside corner of that water, just be cautious. You know, lay in very careful casts. Uh, don't disregard, you know, don't disregard stealth in those situations because you're not going to be able to just walk in there with a big thingamabobber and a couple of split shot and three San Juan worms on the end of your line and start dragging flies over the fish and expect them to eat. Uh, you need to you need to get in there and, and be delicate and be quiet, you know, on your first couple of casts, and because those spots are, can be kind of hard to find, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's not a lot of them out there. Yeah, you said it yourself. You said, well, there's you know, in, in these conditions, we oftentimes don't have an infinite number of spots in low water. I mean, we catch fish mid-channel, the edges, shady banks, boulders, pocket water. There's actually a lot more options as far as the fisherman goes. But in those, I hate walking into those insides and just feeling like I blew it, you know, where I snagged bottom on my first couple of casts. So I tend to like fishing a little bit lighter when I walk into a spot that's suspect and I'll make a couple of of light passes. I actually fish one fly a fair amount because it minimizes my snags on the bottom at first. And then I'll, of course, I'll get dirty and I'll throw two flies and some weight, you know, when I need to. But 
I tend to want really clean pass as my first handful of casts. And fish are extremely perceptive, even during dirty water. I don't beat on spots for an hour and a half. I mean, I get in and I make, you know, my series of good casts. I'll make a few strategic changes with the depth of my indicator. I don't like to hit bottom every single drift. About every third drift, I want to see, I want to, I want some type of visual, and we're talking primarily about indicator fishing now. We'll touch on streamer fishing in a minute, but I want some type of visual affirmation on my indicator about every three casts that I'm nicking the bottom, at least a high spot on the bottom. But when that indicator goes down, I need to be confident that that's a fish so that I can set the hook with you know full speed, full force, no doubt in my mind that it is a fish. Say I throw... I'm speaking just throwing a numbers here, but let's say I throw a dozen drifts down that seam that's suspect, and I don't get any takedowns, I don't hit the bottom. I'm not in a big hurry. I just move my indicator up a foot, two feet maybe. Maybe if I need to, I'll add a little weight, but I tend to find on these inside corners and in dirty water conditions over the years, I find myself fishing a little bit lighter weight setups than I used to. Yeah, I mean, you want it to be efficient no matter what you're doing and snagging the bottom every cast and having to deal with snags. Not only is that not an efficient use of fishing, but it does tend to spook the fish. And I mean, once a pool is disturbed, it the fish behavior changes. There's no doubt about it. I mean, and, and what disturbs it, whether it's you tromping into the water and, and making a bunch of noise or even the boat pulling in and hitting rocks as you're pulling into the shore, I mean, that can make a an impact on on the fishing too and uh you you just want to use make efficient use of your time so the rig that you have needs to be conducive to that yeah i totally agree i mean those fish are fleeing for their lives and you know and each trout right and each spot kind of has like there's a net result either one direction or the other uh either the fish is going to get spooked and not eat that only takes one mistake or the fish is going to get hooked and you're going to succeed that takes one cast so I tend to value my casts in those situations. I'm very much more patient than I used to be. When I find a piece of water that I like, I try really hard not to disrupt that. I want a couple of good drifts. And when I'm guiding, and I I didn't used to do this. Uh, I learned this on some of these saltwater trips you and I have been doing. But you go on a saltwater trip, and the guides that we, we fish with in Mexico, they have a real one, one fish at a time, one angler at a time mentality, right? So we go for tarpon. And their priority is one good shot at one tarpon with one fisherman. And if we succeed, great. If we don't, it was our best effort in order to do that. So when I when I fish in a more high stakes situation, like I've got a really great piece of water, I can just tell it's a it's slower than walking speed. It's got that little tiny bit of nervous chop to it. It's right below an island. I'm I'm kind of making you know one you know let's just say I'm fishing for myself I'm going for one cast or if I'm guiding I'm kind of prioritizing one good opportunity for that angler at that time I just I value that one opportunity so much more than I used to for sure and I think that goes a long ways Joe into just evaluating when you are encountered with a high water situation like that you've got a couple of options one is you could say, you know what, I'm not going to that river today because visibility is tough. And, you know, I don't think I'll have a good day of fishing there. So I'm going to go to this spring creek that is, you know, 20 minutes further, maybe even the same distance, just a different direction or whatever. 
or if you're in some of the other you know rocky mountain states like montana colorado i mean you might go to a tailwater fishery that that feeds out of a dam and even in periods of full-on spring runoff for most of the state some of those rivers are going to still flow clear and provide consistent fishing but the thing about it is as soon as we get some runoff like we're talking about right now we need to understand that probably every angler in your situation is is making that consideration too so you might go to the missouri river or the bighorn river in montana and you're going to be there with every other drift boat in the state that has made that same decision to go there that day and and you know you might scratch out four or five fish i mean whatever it is you might get 10 fish you might get two fish and the reality of it is, is the at the end of the day, what's a more enjoyable experience for you? Is it to go and try and, and you know, take on a challenging situation like a dirty river and high water conditions like we're talking about and go and fish some of these spots and to catch three or four fish in that situation is a very, very satisfying day to me. I mean, they're probably going to be good fish. They're going to fight hard in that flow. And even more so than that, you're going to catch them because you did a good job reading the water. You did a good job executing a stealthy approach. And, you know, you took on a challenge that that might have been normally a little bit out of your comfort zone and you succeeded in it. And, you know, to a lot of anglers, that experience is is more desirable than going to a big, busy piece of water and, and you know, maybe having the same or, or even better results on that busy, busy piece of river that's a known factor. Yeah, I, I man, I relish the challenge of that, the situation you're talking about. I like the unknown. I mean, I like the idea of an adventure where I'm not guaranteed an outcome, and I'm going to need to use my skills, my sixth sense, my predatory instincts when I approach a spooky piece of water. I've now got another level of decision making I need to do. So, yeah, I would just encourage, you know, anybody just take it head on. Um, you know, there's some, you know, there's a lot to be gained, you know, on days where you don't catch fish. And if you listen to last podcast, we talked kind of about planning a trip and the scouting process. And I'm just a huge proponent of, you know, the hunt begins before the hunt begins. And you know, taking the time to actually drive up and down the stream that you're going to go fish. And for some of you, that might be a tributary stream, might be a little stream that's not even open yet. In, in Washington State, our tributaries don't open till June. But having an idea of how to drive there, where to park, where to turn out, is there private property, is there public water, you know, what does the river look like? Does it, look, does it appear that if the water goes down a little bit, I can wade across it? I think those are all you know, lessons that can be learned well before you actually engage in the river. And I think it's a great opportunity too for anybody with kids to throw the kids in the car, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, take a drive and check out some of those maybe new rivers or new lakes or new destinations and take advantage of some of those kind of less, you know, or adverse conditions in order to, to kind of develop uh, some new fisheries. And I think when you go and, you know, there's certain places I just fell in love with the first time I saw them. And you drive up to a new stream or a new lake, you might just get there and go, you know what? I just like this place. You know, I like everything about it. And so that's an opportunity that you have when conditions kind of go south on you is, you know, scout, you know, find something new, find a new location, uh, learn a little bit more about the location, maybe poke around on some back roads and increase your knowledge of the access points. 
Do it when the river is high and dirty. Do not do it during the peak of the golden stonefly hatch, people. That's not when you want to be scouting around or finding new access. Do it early in the season. Do it when conditions are a little bit adverse. Uh, so that's my two cents worth. But, uh, you know, we, before we wrap this up, let's talk strategically. Let's just break this down for people. Let's talk about some of our favorite fly patterns for Western River fishing when conditions get a little bit sour. What do you like? Well, it. I mean, obviously, we talked about the San Juan worm. And I think it's important to have San Juan worms in your fly box in a number of different colors, the, the two main ones being red and pink. And you should also have them in your fly box in several different sizes then, and some with weight on them and some without weight on them. So a lot of San Juan worm patterns have the bead in the middle. There's a lot of patterns that they fish in, you know, Montana, Colorado that are actually copper wire worms. And those are very weighted just because the whole fly is made with copper wire. Yeah, that's a good tip. And then, uh, okay, so San Juan worm, top of the list. Lots San of Juan worm, top of the list, color, sizes, and weight. Another fly that is kind of a sneaky fly not a lot of people have heard about. And it's one that I think is really going to catch on on these western trout streams is called a, a pat stone. Ooh. And I've got some of those in my fly box. I've not seen anyone else fish with those yet, but we have pretty good, pretty good luck, pretty good luck on those things. And I think they're really going to catch on. Let me write that down. Pat's <laughs> stone. Do they That's make right. that? Do they make that in a brown and black? Yeah, they make. Uh, I've seen some brown and black ones. Yes. Oh my yep. gosh, we sell. Uh, for those that actually, the one person out there that doesn't have a pat stone in their fly box ready, we sell literally thousands. Pallets. It, the, Pallets. Semi, the semi shows up for our, our spring preseason order of sand, of uh, pat stones, and we have to get our forklift out to unload <laughs> the pallets of pat stones off of it. Yeah, pat stone in a variety of colors. And then, uh, you know, I've been using this one uh, called the Foxy Brown. Uh, it's got a cone head on it, actually. So it's got that gold cone head. And I started using the bigger size for steelhead a couple of years ago and had a lot of success. And then we ended up ordering more of them in smaller sizes. And I really like that, that foxy stone. Uh, yep. It's got a cone head on it. So, yep. you know, we're talking primarily Western River fishing where there's ample stonefly populations and Stoneflies live yeah. two to four years. Oh. Most of the western trout rivers, I mean, they're going to have a squala hatch, a golden stone hatch, or a salmon fly hatch, and it may not be in any significant volume, but there are going to be one of those three nymphs in that river that are going to get active at some point during the spring months. Yeah, black stonefly nymphs. Uh, I also like a black conehead 20-inch or stonefly nymph. Um, and then buggers, man. So what yep. about dead drifting black buggers? Yep. I mean, it woolly buggers are a great fly. We talked about the noise factor a lot of times with a woolly bugger, um, especially a woolly bugger with rubber legs on it. We fish a lot of those. One approach that I will a lot of times use in the spring months in, in periods of higher dirty water like this is I like to take an upstream casting angle on the water that I'm fishing, even if I'm wade fishing from the bank, I'll, I'll throw my bugger upstream angle, and then as it's drifting down in the soft edge of the current towards me, I'm stripping in just enough line to keep tension with the fly. 
not enough that I'm moving the fly fast because in periods of low visibility, I don't want that fly to get away from a trout. I want a trout, if they draw a bullseye on that fly, I want them to be able to get it. And then it's always going to get, as soon as it swings past you, it's always going to get to the point where it's going to swing back into the bank and then you're, you're stripping on at that point is moving the fly. It's pulsing it a little bit on the hang down before you throw it back upstream to reset your drift. And so a lot of times, I mean, on the downriver part of the drift, you'll feel your fly just stops and, and that's when the fish eats it. Other times that fish might've started following it and it doesn't actually eat it until you get to the hang down. You take your two or three strips to just get your line back to a castable amount of line to go back up river. And, and that's when you'll pick up fish too on it. Yeah. So you're talking about, uh, and, and I've, I've done what you're describing so I can, yeah, that was a great, uh, visualization. I just had, but what you're talking about is upstream streamer fishing. Absolutely. So dudes yep. on foot. He's wading around out there and he's not just casting out in the current and doing a traditional swinging technique which is going to keep his fly higher in the water column you're actually throwing it upstream and making that bait fish or that leech or crayfish whatever it's every trout's greatest fantasy that's actually my slowly swimming downstream towards the fish putting the fish in an ambush scenario yes head first presentation and and again you're not really stripping you're not stripping line fast enough to move the fly and accelerate it at all you're almost dead drifting it you're stripping in line just to maintain enough tension with the fly that you could feel it if a fish grabbed it that's the goal with that and then it's gonna swing past you you know your drift is gonna at the point when it gets straight out from you it's gonna sweep past you then and the current will swing it into the bank below you which if you're starting, when I, when I am employing that technique, I will start at the bottom of the run and work my way up as opposed to starting at the top of the run and working my way down. So you're using a floating line, nine-foot type leader, uh, weighted fly, obviously. Right, yep. I okay. prefer doing that with a floated, floating line and a weighted fly instead of a sinking line and and you know either weighted or unweighted fly just because i want the fly to be the part of it that that is the limiting factor on touching the bottom or not not the line yeah that's a deadly technique and if somebody's just kind of getting into that uh that's a great way to fish and i think that i think a, a classic black cone head bugger is a, just a fantastic pattern for these dirty water situations because it imitates it actually drifts well as a salmon fly nymph believe it or not you know, right. salmon fly nymph is really big, uh, and a lot of western rivers have salmon flies, and I think that black bugger does a litany of different. It creates a litany of different illusions. So, at the junk, at, at moments of your drift, that black bugger is going to be dead drifting. At other moments, it's going to pick up some life, and yep. it's going to be under a little bit of control. But yep. you, I think I think it's a great attractor pattern in general. I mean, fish will eat it as a like you said, a salmon fly nymph, they'll eat it as a sculpin, they'll eat it as a crayfish, they'll eat it as a leech. I mean, it can imitate any number of those. Yeah, and so if somebody was just kind of getting started, because what you're talking about is definitely an intermediate to an advanced line control uh, skill set, right? So because you're, you've got a little bit of sixth sense feel of how fast the fly is moving downstream. Now, some of our guides when they're when they're guiding and they're guiding newer anglers they're using an indicator with that you could certainly use it like a thingamabobber type or a, a 
an indicator. You bet. You could do that. I don't think you have as much control, but if if somebody's you know kind of experimenting with this, or say they're running their their dirt snake, you know their San Juan worm and a nymph, and they want to mix things up a little bit, there wouldn't be anything that stops them from just tying a black bugger or a small, say medium sized streamer on an indicator and pitching it upstream and doing the same thing to a degree with a strike. No, I think that that's a a good point is I really and truly don't think that there is any presentation you could give a woolly bugger that wouldn't imitate something as far as an aquatic organism goes, whether you're dead drifting it or stripping it super fast or any combination thereof, upstream angle presentation, downstream angle and fast swing. I mean, that woolly bugger has such a a diverse varieties of presentation that can produce fish on it that I think it's it's about as close to a universal fly and and method as as there is in fly fishing period totally agree and then and then you obviously have you know depending on there's you know we're discussing so many different scenarios here but there's obviously like traditional streamer fishing that can be done as well guys can cast streamers and strip them across either from a boat or on foot they could swing streamers on sink tips. Well, the scenario you're describing could work at any time, but it's especially advantageous on those soft corners and dirty water. For sure, yep. And and periods of the year where the fish maybe aren't, the, their metabolism is slow enough that they're not in that chase mode. You know, once we get into the summer months and especially in the fall, um, you know, that's when those fish, the water temps are warm enough their metabolism is up, they're sitting suspended in the current lines, and they're a lot more willing to go out and, and put a hard chase on a fly and chase it down. Those are the days where you just want to cast that thing close to the bank and strip it back towards the boat as fast as you can. Yeah. Now, those are great tips. And then uh, let's touch a little bit, just real quick, on additional nymphs. So we're going to go out, we're going to use in a variety of black stonefly nymphs, and maybe we've got some buggers we sell all of those at reds by the way just so you know uh but people are going to go out with a variety of different flies but they're going to want some supplemental nymphs uh for conditions where we're not talking about extreme say we're talking about two feet of visibility 18 inches to three feet let's just say it's mediocre visibility at that point we're starting to think about mayfly nymphs right or caddis pupa for sure i mean those are spring bugs we know that those nymphs are going to get active and you know for caddis pupa i mean chartreuse is a very visible color in in off color water as well that's a great option and then i still probably if i were to add up all the fish that i catch in a year i can't tell you how many years of guiding but it's probably been you know at least at least the majority of years of guiding i've caught more fish on a lightning bug nymph throughout the course of that year than than any other fly i would say and that lightning bug nymph in the pearl color or purple color are two great options for the spring months. The pearl color could imitate, you know, any emerging insect. It gets that air bubble around it as it's starting to swim in the water. And, and that flash, I mean, it's a great pattern for caddis, blue-winged olive, any of that. The purple bugger, we get a lot of, you know, again, blue-winged olive nymphs are pretty dark in the water. But on this river, we also get March browns and mahogany duns. And, you know, those are going to be dark, and that purple is a good imitation for those two. Yeah, I can't imagine there's too many 
things that float by a trout that give off a purple iridescent that aren't food that right. can't be mistaken as organic debris right yep i mean the lightning bug is one you've got to have in your box and size 14 and 16 for sure yeah so yeah two feet to four you know 18 inches to you know three to four feet of visibility you're starting to think about some traditional beadhead nymphs i really like the chartreuse we i fish chartreuse copper johns i fish that more super pupa in the chartreuse color a lot uh and i also like that big there's one called a natto mayfly nymph and uh and and certainly there's thousands of nymph patterns out there but if you look these up you know you might get some visual examples but that anato and mayfly nymph in the peacock in the bigger size just has such a nice sharp you know black profile it's black and peacock it's got a black bead and i just think the shape of that thing the fish can really pick up that the shape of that bug uh even in in poor clarity i i like that number 12 and that one a little bit bigger um and then yeah that's a that's a great pattern for the drakes as well yeah yeah that's a another big spring mayfly and then as far as uh you know probably our last tip here is going to be you talked earlier about something just called like high bank waiting as far as like anglers approach to the river what are just a couple of tips on on their footwork and where they stand and, and such and do they well i up? mean it so you know number one when you're wading a river in high water conditions you can't a lot of times you can't see the bottom where you're stepping so it's the first thing that you need to be careful of is you don't move your downriver foot until you're confident that your upriver foot is set in a solid spot so make sure you got one foot set before you take another step to reset and then the other the other recommendation I would have is, you know, I'm 42 years old now, and I have never considered using a waiting staff until these last couple years. And I've gotten into some situations where I'm just going, man, this is miserable. And it would be so much nicer to have a waiting staff out there. And, and you know, I would always recommend when you can't see the bottom of the river, that's just a third leg that gives you a lot of support and lets you probe to see where your next step might end up so that's always a good thing to use is use a waiting staff make sure your one foot is planted before you go to move your other one and, and take another step and then the other thing about it is you don't need to take four steps in between casts when you're fishing river conditions like this i mean take one step two or three good casts good drifts clean drifts in in water that you feel is productive productive and then take one more step downstream or upstream depending on what your your strategy is and repeat it and and keep after it don't work the water too fast yeah i just say you know i own like two or three waiting staffs myself and i never used them uh i'm not 42 not 40 yet but good shape uh, for a 42 year old though yeah mentally yeah. and physically now that steve brings up a super good point is what he didn't say is you move faster when you have a waiting staff you move more efficiently and especially when it comes like hey i'm gonna walk from where i'm at now and i'm gonna walk 300 yards to that next sweet spot up there you move faster with a waiting staff and nobody would go climb mountains without trekking poles right that's right it'd be silly i mean so when it comes to wading in rivers with you know, slippery terrain and rocks and things like that i i own like i said i use them myself uh and i move much more efficiently and i move faster with a waiting staff and i actually started using cleats this last year 
and I'm super happy that I did that. I use those goat head spikes and uh, they just plug right into, I use a Reddington wading boot currently, but those goat head spikes just plug right in with a drill and I can, I can move them in and out if I'm gonna be in my boat, I can just pop them out of there, it just takes a minute, but my mobility on the river is much better. And when I guide and I have two anglers and one of them has a wading staff and one doesn't, the guy who doesn't is always pokey. Man, he's the last one to the run. Like, hey, Frank, we're going to you know hike upstream here to this next spot. And George has the waiting staff. And Frank is, he's like, where's Frank? Oh, he's still down there around the bend working his way up. And the guy with the waiting staff's first one on the water. So I actually think that's, I didn't even think of that, but it's a great tip because it makes better use of your time as well. Yep. Yep. So I think you got anything else to add, Steve? Well, I mean, I would say the only other thing I'd add when it comes to to planning and and considering a strategy for for runoff conditions or dirty water conditions in general is at the end of the day if it comes down to you've got an opportunity to go fishing or not go fishing I mean as long as the safety thing is not an issue I mean it's one thing to fish a a river in full-on flood stage where there's huge logs and all that coming down it and and you really that river is unfishable at that point so you don't want to press your luck by trying to do something like that. But when it comes down to it, I mean, if it's, you know, going fishing in marginal conditions or staying home and going golfing or, or you know, doing chores around the house, I would always say go fishing because, you know, there are those anomalies out there. I mean, the best day of steelhead fishing that I've ever had we were up there and we'd fished, you know, the previous five days and it was our last day to go home and it started raining on our, the previous night, it started pouring rain and we knew that the river was going to be going up on our, what would be our last day of fishing and we leave after we fished that day. So it really didn't make sense for us to go drive to a different river somewhere and try and get away from it. And so we woke up that next morning, we were looking at the river, it was getting dirty, it was you know, we knew it was on the rise, not just stabilized and going to be dropping. We knew it was going to be a rising river that was getting dirtier. And we said, you know what, we're here. We're going to fish it today. If it's terrible, we'll just, you know, get on the road at one o'clock this afternoon and get an early start on it. If not, we'll fish it today. And that's probably the best day of steelhead fishing that I've ever had up there. And those fish, we caught those fish in the same runs that day that we'd been fishing previously, but we caught them, you know, all the way into the bank. They weren't out in mid-current. They weren't out on that, you know, ledge that's a third of the way out there. We were catching them right in line with our feet, which, you know, we'd been wading out knee-deep on some of those runs, and that day we were wading out ankle-deep is all and swinging all the way into the bank, and that's where those fish were at then. Amen to that. Yeah, it yep. sound, sounds like the water conditions may have actually moved those fish into more vulnerable holding lies for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it triggered something. I mean, it made them aggressive is, is what I think it was. So at the end of the day, if that's what it is, your options are to go fishing or not go fishing, and, and you're looking at marginal conditions of fishing, It you just never know. I mean, saddle up, go after it, and there's no doubt about it, those fish that you catch that day are going to be very satisfying fish.
Well, that was a great podcast having Steve on today. I just look forward so much uh, to learning from him each and every time. He's just been guiding a long time and helping a lot of fishermen, you know, both in the shop and running the business here. So uh, there's so many great tips, you know, buried within that. And one of them definitely was that the quick story that he shared about BC about sometimes that water, you know, coming up or rising a little bit, actually resituating the fish within the river, I just thought was a gem. Uh, and I hadn't really thought of it like that before, but in thinking back to a lot of my own trips, uh, especially trophy trout, just seems like a lot of those days where conditions are tough or the water levels have been disrupted, I always seem to catch one or two just above average size fish, you know, and fish I might not normally have access to. So it was great having them on, just great information. Uh, Realize that you can you can get this information uh, on our blog as well. Uh, we post articles there all the time at redsflyshop.com, and you can check us out there. You can shop online with us if you want to pick up any of the fly patterns of which we discussed. You can do that as well, and uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well, and stay in touch. And we look forward to producing the next podcast. We appreciate you listening.